A quick note for the listener. We recorded this podcast back in November of 2020 prior to the Disney, Marvel, and Lucasfilm investor presentation. It is also the first episode we ever recorded. I say this because we discussed Don Cheadle returning as War Machine long before Armor, Armor Wars was ever announced. We further date ourselves by discussing The Mandalorian Season 2, which was coming out at the time. On to the show! Now we'll just have to figure out what kind of opening we want and sounds or whatever we want to actually put in. Uh, you know, I think it would be different if we just went straight into the show. We don't even started talking. Jingle with our name. Fuck the openings. I say fuck the openings. Let's like, let's just start the conversation. Everybody, you know how many shows have introductions and and and, and theme songs and That's stuff true. like that. Nobody, nobody cares about us. They just want to hear people talking. Yeah, that's true. So we'll just we, we, we just go straight into it. I think that's enough, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I think so. Okay. So, are you guys caught up with the Mandalorian now? Uh, yes, I am. I am. I know you are. I am not. I uh, just just finished it. So it yeah, was. It. it was so much. Well, Kaim knows. It's most funny because what Matt and I bonded over in Star Wars, they get into in that episode, and I can't even talk to Matt about it right now. <laughs> like, well, finding out you hadn't watched subject? it. Well, like, what um, Ahsoka... Well, that just spoiled it, but, like, it wasn't really spoiling it. No, I mean, everybody <laughs> knew Rosario Dawson was... Yeah. yeah. What Ahsoka yeah. was saying to that magistrate... What what yeah, she asked yeah. her about that like oh, when that happened yeah, I yeah. was like I was like had my head between my knees I thought I was gonna have a panic attack no you guys totally will will go nuts over that yeah right that, like that. I lost well, my I, I will go nuts you guys are gonna lose your shit. well yeah you're gonna lose your shit I lost my mind I lost my mind and it was it was so like perfect and first of all what are those what are the the Togruta like head things called again? I can't recall. Um, there's a word Which for them. Those? I will check. Quick Google Garuda search again. But oh, they okay. the us her race of her species. But my point oh, is, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It had like weird like memory foam wrinkles in it, but like I think that was on purpose to make it look more realistic. I was just about, yeah. Wasn't that the foam? We've seen like we've seen we've never seen a Togruta up close in no. live action before. The closest... No, I thought was Shock T. Yeah, she got killed. Like, that was the one scene we but saw. But she's barely, she's barely in the, the pre... In yeah, the, and it was a wide books. shot. Yeah. yeah. It was a wide shot, no close-up. I think the closest before we saw Ahsoka was, I think, one of the Jedi that came to arrest Palpatine in the end of Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Was it Togruta? It was Plo Koon, some, uh, uh, some Zabrak, Mason, one other guy. I can't remember. Listen to you disrespect those those brave and honorable Jedi who fell. Pump, please, pump, please. Punk ass PCs that we don't give a crap about. I mean, they they were just NPCs. <laughs> they were just NPCs. Red shirts. Okay. <laughs> if me, uh, Plo Koon and. Kiati Mundi, do you think they would have been able to take Palpatine? Well, Plo Koon has electric judgment, so probably. No, no, no. 
fucking Pal- it's Palpatine. Not, not me. It's Palpatine. It's not happening. No, the re- the reason he couldn't take them was classic. Like it was formulaic, right? Because we knew they weren't going to beat him. Obviously, dude. They, there's no way. Yeah, you'd have to get the world's, mm-hmm. I don't know, biggest hardcore, you know, side character fanboy to write that fight. It would not. It would not happen. I'm not buying that. Maybe, but like I'm not buying it. I think like what it was really it was a role play, it was role playing. <laughs> it was a storytelling device to show holy shit Sidious or Palpatine has been holding back this yeah, long. He just he's killed not, he's he's not a joke. These, which was Yeah, that's good. Well, I was also of 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 the mindset that he was faking when he was like shooting that lightning and said yeah, I'm course. so weak, help me. Blah, oh yeah. Blah, blah. I feel like if he hadn't wanted to turn Anakin, he could have done a lot more damage to Mace. Than he okay, I agree. Him. I agree with. I agree with that. Uh, I am not somebody who thinks that Mace actually no, had him. Be no, I think like he probably was. It was a yeah. It was a a, a, a he was trying to fuck with Anakin. <sighs> yeah, man. I'm like, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna think about the sequels. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, save, we'll save that. Good, I'm, just thinking about, good, I'm just thinking. Let I'm just, flow. I'm just thinking about the lightsaber combat, right? Because that made me think of an interview I just read with John Color with Zito, where he said, "Quote, there, like, there's gonna be." He said, like, something along the line, lightsaber combat in season two, right? And like, we saw a fair bit of that in the most recent episode. But like, the fact that he said that tells me that like this isn't the last we've seen of Ahsoka. This isn't like, like there's gonna be like junk like Moff Gideon with the dark saber and Ahsoka with her lightsabers. They're gonna fight. It's like it's not even a question. I think. Yeah, but how? I mean, okay, Ahsoka is pretty much the last character we've got who's capable of doing really insane lightsaber moves. I mean, who else has been taught that kind of sword play? That's still left alive. I mean, I mean, I, I suppose it's a big galaxy. They can essentially retcon any lost Jedi's, any sort of friggin' honestly. Like, oh, we were in the way I out think... of rim when that stuff happened. That's how with Ezra. That's how Disney. That's honestly how di- how I think Disney will save their asses yeah. with Star Wars. They'll ascend, they will do they will run right up to the line. They won't like step over the line, but they'll wave their hand over it of ret- in the line being retconning the prequels. No, basically I, I to think... say like, oh yeah, not all of the Jedi yeah, like, over ten thousand Jedi and let's say a thousand le- a thousand Jedi like survive. You know you what? Know? They were only bottom line is they can say something as simple as um oh, you know, we sent out uh, you know, what is it? Uh sort of um, a feverish faction, what are they called? A zealot faction decided to become, uh, what's that word? When you when you go out and do mi- missionaries. They're, they were forced missionaries and they went out to the hey, far, far planets and they, they basically colonized shit and they Christopher Columbus planets in the name of the Jedi. Well, and they come yeah. back as, as a potentially not so good force anymore. And the good Jedi have to well, do their thing. I think there's a story. Yeah. Boom. I think uh, legends le- le- legends shows us that almost all with the exception of like main Sith that the 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 true Sith died with Darth Vader, right? Sure. Cuz like if you go like in, and legends shows us that like every other like the vast majority at least of like force using 
traditions of force traditions were all like splinters off of the Jedi. Like if you're talking about like the Gen Sarai, right? Which were like, like hardcore, like we use the dark side of the force to serve the light side of the force. But we could, if like in a white room, we would be considered Sith, but only in the context of our, how we use our abilities, are we considered good guys? Yeah. I'm doing air quotes. Um, the Ang T monks who they talk about in the hand of Thrawn duology who are like, uh, they use the force to like teleport their ships. And like, we never hear about the Ang T monks again. At least I haven't in legends yet. Um, let's not forget the, what is it? If they want to, if they want to incorporate game lore, then you have the, the, what is it called? The lost, um, empire, the, what, what are they called from new Republic? Old oh. Republic. What, what was that called? The Eternal, Eternal Empire. Eternal Empire. Empire. That's the one. That's the one. And uh, uh, what was his name? Like um, uh, Vescelian, Vitruvian? No, nope, that's the Da Vinci drawing. The but guy, yeah. the yeah. guy who leads the Eternal Empire, who, and like his sons have those awesome, oh have that awesome uh, battle armor. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was a good. That was a good. Uh, that's just like. Okay, the leader of the Eternal Emperor Empire is Emperor Valkorian. Valkorian, that's it. I knew it was something edgy. That is pretty damn edgy. You know, like, I, I feel like there was so much, I think, like, if the graphics and gameplay weren't so shit, I'd probably what? play with the old Republic Dude, it was... Now. I played a it little... It was pretty decent. The MMO, not... I'm not talking about KOTOR, I'm talking about the MMO. Yeah, me too. The one by Bioware, right? Oh, it wasn't that bad. Here's my problem. Here's Dude, my problem. Maybe I've explained those, this to you. Kyle. But go on. <laughs> I've explained. I've explained this to Kaima, to you, Kaima, at length. My problem with MMOs is that they are a pale comparison to like tabletop RPGs. So, in terms of fun and like I, possibilities, no, I, 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 like, the most fun I've ever had playing those is when you have friends to play with. Then the shit gets so fun because you're, the stuff you're doing and doing like tag teaming stuff. See all my, all, all my. This is a problem. All my friends were rugby and other rugby and hockey players. So I never, I never. I think I played. I think I played. Uh, I think I played. Well, I think maybe all of two, like game crunch, like crunch sessions of World of Warcraft with a buddy of mine from high school. That's the only time I ever played with anyone of my anyone really. The, yeah, I've never played with, with, with many friends like in those online multiplayer games. But back when you just have local multiplayer, like for the N64, Goldeneye, that oh, yeah. stuff. Like co-op. Like, the most fun to play oh, with Oh, absolutely. There's supposed to, yeah, there, there's a, yeah. I feel like like co-op is coming back. It's in indie, it's stuck in indie games right now. But like, I think like bringing back like, like screen sharing COD, you know, I, I remember playing like team death or team death matches in uh modern warfare 2 with my one buddy shout out to chris and uh we play like modern warfare 2 rust obviously um and that would be and like i think like the screen share screen sharing and playing together two people on a couch against two people on another couch half a world away like i think that's something video games could bring back I think that's what you're talking yeah. about. Like because of because I never had that MMOs never really okay, appealed yeah. to me in and sort of a, a I didn't broader, actually play like a, a lot realm. of it with uh, a buddy of mine also named Chris. Shout out to Chris. Um, but it was it was just more fun and it just exponentially it was more fun and that's why I believe like games like that mm. could 
um, definitely like MMOs could make a huge comeback like that. Yeah, I think like well, like the new Baldur's Gate game is supposed to be like that. It's like a, it's a turn-based RPG. Um, I'd play. I maybe I'll play it if I get a Stadia or something. Yeah. I'm not one to game on my computer, but like, because uh, you can like build your party and people can like you can join and people can play together and adventure as a party and do the campaign as a party mm-hmm. of like up to four, four or five or six people. And there's something to be said for that, but. I don't know. I think like if I wanted to play an MMORPG, I'd play an MMORPG with my friends. If I wanted to play a like a, a single person campaign, yeah, I'd play a single that's, person campaign. That's the you know? one thing. I don't think there's uh, a, there's an auto, there's an auto lot of I don't still think there's a lot of enjoyment in between like The Witcher and World of Warcraft. I will say one thing about a lot of the old MMOs um of like the early two thousands, a lot of them put so much emphasis on team playing and like playing with friends <clears> and <throat> having friends. That it just got uh, impossible to play single player. Play it with say it, so you said that with such derision. Having friends, what's that like? You know what? <laughs> Not all of us. Well, the thing is, I just didn't have a lot of the friends who enjoyed the same type of games I did. So Neither um, did a I. lot of them loved the first person shooters, and I'm not a fan. I just don't care about first person shooters. I felt the same way. Um, the only the exception for me is Bioshock. I love the Bioshock series of games. Uh, I have computers. I have never played a Bioshock game. You should. I mean, the environments that they create uh, for the those games. The stories are, are ridiculous. Like, I've watched at least three of them, and it is, there are some horrifying, truly horrifying moments in those games, but you cannot look away. I used to be, sorry, go, Matt. Oh no! I was just going to say I'm thinking specifically of the first one when I when I played that game and I saw Rapture and what they had created. Like I was just like, you know, engrossed in this game because just the was, visuals of it. I'm not going to lie, I thought you were going to well, say you were in Rapture. I should have said I was in Rapture. Just to piss off um, Sam. Well, were very good for the time. It was just a really cool world that they created. Yeah. The world creation was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Well, like I, I had a point. <laughs> no, like I, I, I heard about the Bioshock games, but like so FPSs. That was what we were talking about. Like I was big into Call of Duty. I first, first Call of Duty game I played was Modern Warfare Two. I still have my because when I bought the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, it came with Modern Warfare Two. My Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty has the Modern Warfare Two paint on it. I'm keeping it purely out of sentimentality, and I'm, I'm sure it's worth something. And I never, I, it's like, it's, I keep it in good shape. I never play it. But I played, I think I played World, I went back and I played World of War. I played, I think I played every game up to and including Advanced Warfare, the one with, um, uh, where Troy Baker played the protagonist and like had a cool robotic I've arm. I've never watched any of them. And, but it was only like a, it was only like a three hour main story. And then, for me, I was playing them for the main story, and I think that was the first one where they liked, oh, the main story is just like an excuse for you if you want to, if you care, give a shit about the setting. But most people don't who play like Call of Duty nowadays. And that was the last Call of Duty game I played. Like, I haven't played the new, like, Modern Warfare. I haven't played Black Ops 4 or was there a Black Ops 5? I don't there's, know. There's a new um, one now there's Black coming Ops out, Cold right? Uh, something to do with Reagan. Yeah. Black Ops, Cold, Black Ops Cold yeah. War. Yeah. Reagan. Ugh. My favorite president. No. <laughs> like 
Well, I don't know. Like, am I going to, unless like it's realistic, like I'm in this, it's Black Ops Cold War. Am I selling crack to kids in New York? If I'm not doing that, then it's not realistic. Right. <laughs> There's no war on drugs. Um, but no, yeah. like, forget it. I think the, I think the last, if I really look back, like, and look at like the FPSs I've enjoyed, at the top of the list is like World at War, tied with Black Ops. And then right below them is Halo Reach. I played. I didn't play all the Halo games. I played Halo Reach. That's the only Halo game I've ever played. Yeah, I played. Uh, I think I played the original Halo when it came out. But again, because it was a first-person shooter, and the world just didn't seem all that. Ac- Dude, the story is yeah. actually not that bad. I've watched most of those games, and you get more and more invested over time. It's it's not bad. Yeah, I. I, I I, I would I, I would believe that usually if I give something a chance and I play enough of it or I watch enough of it or I read enough of it, yeah. I, you know, often I will get, you know, really into it. And, yeah, I think it was just that I didn't give it enough of a chance. Matt, I think my problem with for FPSs nowadays is the vast majority of them don't have any story or, like, campaign to speak of. Like, I think the most recent major FPS release is, like, Doom Eternal. And I think that had, like, 12 or 15 hours of campaign but, like, the setting's not compelling to me. Those but, games uh, just sorry. have too much going on, man. I don't know how... I've lost that ability. That's the point. Yeah, I've lost that ability to sort of keep up with so many moving targets and stuff. And I'm just like, how do these young people do it now? <laughs> young yeah, people. the young people. Um, you're not that old. Not that young. I think, like, there's something to be said for if someone were to make a game that really gave you an idea of like conflict, right? Like that's why I like the, that's why I like a game like World at War is really, really good. Cause it, it gives you like a slice of life of two of the most important theaters in World War II, right? The Eastern, like like the Russian front and the, the, the American Japanese front, the American, the Pacific theater of the war. Um, whereas like a more recent game, uh, like, Modern Warfare 3, for example, right? Like, the big thing in the trailer was the first M turned into a W, and it was about World War 3, right? Um, and how it eventually all came, it all, like, was calmed down before nukes you were mean, launched or whatever. You mean how they're planning um, it? And how they're... Yeah, but, like, they don't... But they don't... They well, My point being, they don't really delve into... Like, no one has yet to really get into, like, what were to happen if an, a full-scale war broke out in like a major nation not the fact that they just keep bombing uh like arabs and iraqis and Af- and people in afghanistan oh, into oblivion was, um, in real life a game like that um it was something to do with korea uh and koreans basically just pushed their way into the states Oh, and oh yes, Homefront. Home oh yeah, I played Homefront, home front. the original Homefront, not the shitty remake. Oh, I played Far Cry games. I don't oh, really count Far Cry games because they're basically sort assass- of... they're basically first person Assassin's Creed. That's yeah. Uh, I love the Far Cry games. Front, I, I started I watching. Most dude, of them. I started watching Homefront, and I actually could not watch that game. It was too freaky, too real, too real, bro. Yeah, it's Homefront's a good game. The 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 one that they remade, like I. I, I read some reviews. I watched a bit of gameplay. It didn't look super enjoyable to me. Mm-hmm. The Homefront, the original Homefront, I think it had like 20, 25 hours of gameplay. It was a pretty good, pretty good lengthy game. Um, 
I read like a couple. I read a novel based in the universe. What? Yeah. Do you think twenty? So you would say twenty-five hours is, is is an acceptable length for a game? I think south of twenty, I'm not buying it for a campaign, unless I'm buying it for a completely different reason. Now, now is that just in terms of like first-person shooters? Like it would need to have a twenty-hour campaign or anything? In general, the game has okay. But if it's a first-person shooter, but if it's a not if it's not a first-person shooter, the selling point probably isn't that you have multiplayer, right? right. Like if you look at um, like Assassin's Creed Brotherhood to Assassin's Creed Three, they all had like forty, fifty, sixty-hour campaigns, and they had like deathmatch, uh, like like different like games you could play in multiplayer, like Capture the Flag, uh, like uh, um, Track and Kill, um, like Assassinate Missions, whatever, um, like Territory Control, uh, uh. Or even like Unity, where they just had co-op, like up to four-person co-op. Uh, the selling point of those games was not the multiplayer, right? The selling point was the main single-player campaign. Like if you look at every FPS, with the exception of probably Bioshock and Far Cry, AAA, we'll say, and we're not counting like Grand Theft Auto first-person, uh, right? Like every first-person shooter, the selling point has been what you can do online in multiplayer. Yeah. There was there actually was another series that I, I played. It was called Crisis. Crisis. I've seen those. I've uh, seen those, and the gameplay like just it did not like I couldn't watch the movies of those games. It didn't. I, yeah, I recommend watching the movies. I enjoyed the gameplay, specifically the yeah. first one. Uh, I didn't really care with you know with the direction they necessarily took the story in the second one. They switched out the main character, but that was a first. That was another first person shooter that I thought mm. was interesting. Um, the mechanics were good. The graphics yeah. were, were, especially of the first game, were very advanced for their time. Yeah, so I, remember what, I think like, if I think if more nine, that was one of the ones I picked up. Yeah, I think if more games like first-person shooters like Bioshock or like Thief came out more, um, like games that were really, really not so focused on like a certain theme. Oh, okay, never right. Mind. Like a certain, like a certain, like a certain aspect they want to explore. Like Far Cry is almost always white man comes comes to tropical locate or foreign location and saves the day, right? Oh, okay, I see what you Except mean. Except in, in Far in Far in, in Far Cry Four, he was a local, but he was American. So. Um, there um, was there was that game about it was like this wacky psychotic. Um, yeah, it was this wacky psychotic. A uh, version of like 1984 where you had to take happy pills, uh, and if you didn't, the these police with like Joker masks would beat the crap oh, out of you. Oh fuck! And I started watching that, and that game is intense, man, and it is weird. I can't. I I I know what game you're talking about. I cannot remember. Neither can I. All of a sudden, about. but man, it was that looked. On. Like if that if that was a game if I was a gamer I would I would definitely that would be the type of game I would invest in. Was it a recent game? Like no. relatively recent, like past five years, yeah. maybe past five or six years. There was a bit of buzz around it for being like one of the first games where where uh, your mood affected the gameplay or something like that or your character's mood. It was just weird, like something about it. Like come yeah. join us, or think... something like that. <clears throat> I think a cool model that they should be getting into more is like the Ghost Recon uh, games, 
like I played Wildlands. I didn't play the more recent one where they, it's like all drones and John Bernthal is the villain. But like it's you can be like local four person uh, like four person co op or not local, but four person co op, and it can be cross platform. I believe with Wildlands forward. I liked it because it was like realistic look at like what a Western controlled like strike team is used for nowadays. It's like toppling governments, killing cartel leaders. Um, but I think like transitioning from the first person shooter, but keeping keeping everything, but like shifting the aesthetic and into like a third person. Like I don't see the appeal of first person because like when I why are you giving me all that. these gears? Well, I had enough. Why are you giving me all these gear sets when I can't even see with my gear? I want to see my gear. Yeah, that's well. That's what's really puzzled about cyberpunk which is coming out like you have all these ways that you can customize your character but so mm -hmm. much of the game it's a first person game so mm -hmm. I, I i understand that maybe how you do, how you customize your character at the beginning of the game may have an impact on the world in which you inhabit and how you interact with other people and what happens to you but i, I think it's still kind of um waste a wasted opportunity that you can't really see the character or maybe you can in cutscenes. i don't really know um it's just it's just interesting that they went first person with so much customization. Yeah, it could be the it could be like yeah, in cutscenes you see them, kind of like in um, trying to think of another game where that's the case, and I can't think of any. But like, it could be a case of like, oh, you can look in your you can look at your reflection. Um, but yeah, it could very I, well be it could very well be like a um uh, uh, a Grand Theft Auto Five type transition between them that you can do that they just haven't shown you yet because they want you to focus on the in the, the fact that it's a first person shooter because that's how you appeal right you appeal to a wide audience by making sure you can be a first person shooter that's how you get people who like only play who play for fps's and cod online almost exclusively to buy your game you guys watched uh you guys caught up on star trek discovery no, no. and when we get into our star trek discussion we will I'm sure. Yeah, I have a couple of pretty. I have a. I have some pretty good rebukes to one side of that discussion, purely based on this past Thursday episode of Star Trek Discovery. Um, there's like a handful of scenes, handful of scenes I didn't like, but there's a handful of scenes that really, really help my argument. Um, it's your point, Matt. But well, you know. okay. Well, let's I mean, let's just I, get into it then. Okay, so the first topic that we're going to be discussing today is, is optimism, or, or is an optimistic view of the future, an essential aspect of Star Trek? And not just of a particular Star Trek series, but of Star Trek in general. And I've, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, because my gut reaction is, yes, absolutely, 100%. And if you do a Google search for Gene Roddenberry quotes, so there's so many quotes and they're all very optimistic views of the future. So I think, you know, at, at a very basic level, yes, Star Trek was created to have an optimistic view of the future. And everybody can have different views of what that optimistic future looks like, which is probably the first thing that we should really discuss before we say, is an optimistic view of the future an essential part of Star Trek? What what do you guys think when you think of, you know, that kind of future? Go for it, Sam. Yes. We'll just be putting hands up now because we're also on video. So right. 
I think I would preface my answer with I came to Star Trek not only the um, not only later than you guys, but in a different era. The first Star Trek I watched were the was the JJ like was the JJ Abrams film. Or For the real? first Star Trek movie I the yeah. And then upon my my parents seeing I enjoyed it, they had the uh the complete all of the Star Trek m- movies from the motion picture through to the the Undiscovered Country is the last one, right? The sixth and final I have one. No idea. Oh, the original, yeah, the original cast. So I watched, and my parents I had them on cassettes on VHS tapes, and uh, my parents showed them to me, and then I liked them. I, I I enjoyed them, I should say. Wrath of Khan, like a lot of people, Wrath of Khan was my favorite, and my parents were happy to see that. My parents were sort of a semi nerd e. Pan is two white people for that many years will do that to you. Um, uh, and then from there, my parents sort of, I sort of fell off. And then around the time the second one came out, the second uh, of the the Kelvin trilogy uh, came out. Into Darkness. Yeah, Into Darkness. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, and then my parents got me to start watching TNG. I didn't love it at the time. And then around the time uh, Beyond came out, I started watching TNG again, and I you changed the person. I loved it, and I been I think I binged watched all seven seasons inside of like a month. You know, it was right around the time I met Matt actually that I started watching TNG. I believe so a little a little bit after Beyond came out. So my initial reaction is is only if it's the TV show because or like one of the older TV shows because. Shows were very episodic, like in up until like the mid to like the mid two thousands, and now with shows like with like the more recent ones like Picard and Discovery, they are optimistic, but they are more overarching. So like in like the first like two, three, four, five, six episodes of a season may not be that optimistic, but the back half, with increasing levels of optimism, there is more and more optimism as the episodes go on. So I would say short answer is start is it essential? No, is it requ- is it required? No, but it is essential. But what do you think of when you think of an optimistic view of the future? Like what's your criteria? I, for I saying, disagree with Sam optimistic? though. I got to before you go on, I got to disagree with Sam though because I don't think that uh I I think it's actually um I think it depends it depends on the time. Um, and I'm sorry to get a little bit meta on, on, um, what, anyways, I'm not, you know what? No, I'm not sorry. I take it back. I'm not sorry. I'm going to get meta. I don't give a shit. Um, it depends on the times because Roddenberry created Star Trek at a time where America was building things and, um, it was, it was building things. It was doing the space program where it just had, and people were hopeful. People were optimistic about the future. And I think one of the elements of strong science fiction is that it takes the current mood and shows the world a mirror um, based on in uh, basically shows a reflection of themselves through these through these sci-fi genres and tropes and whatnot. That's why I mean that's why Black Mirror is so popular right now, and I think that's why I think that's why. Um, Sector 31 was created for Star Trek, uh, you know, back in the day, because that's part of the mood. 
I, I agree that it should reflect, it should speak to the um, current mood in society. But I, my view of Star Trek, and again, because the first Star Trek I was introduced to was Star Trek The Next Generation. So that really informs a lot of my ideas of what makes kind of my ideal Star Trek. I like the idea of holding up a mirror to society, but showing a time when those particular struggles kind of have been overcome, showing how something that might be happening in society has been dealt with in the future. And now people have that, that that's no longer an issue. Um, well, I, I just to that last point, I would say, yes, a big part of Star Trek is showing and to maybe answer your previous question, Matt, before Kim said what he said, I think what makes an optimistic view of the future in Star Trek or what an optimistic view of the future is and why Star Trek shows that is it because is because it shows us how we have accomplished our problems in the past. You know, how many times in in I think there was an episode in T, there was an episode of TNG and right and they uncover like a, basically the survivors of a generation ship or not or who were put in cryostasis to be sent to some other planet who got lost. But in, in that time, from they left a calamitous, dest almost destroyed Earth, and they were awoken in the TNG era, when arguably the Federation is at its, or is at its, the highest heights it's ha it, has been, it has been at since, or ever. Well, as and far as we know, they, yeah, and still like, as far as we know. 800 years um, between TNG and, and, and the Latin no, well, well, Yeah, so like... But a big part of the thing they, Riker says is, or someone, this like some Texas oil baron asks, like, what about all my I cash? And he's like, money doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter anymore. And he's like, well, what if I'm hungry? Well, then you'll be fed. And what if I'm sick? Then you'll be healed. We've, got, we've gotten over the problems. But then in that very same episode, we see that there are still people who struggle with greed and, uh, uh, you know, just a, a desire to hold power over other people. So... And I think what Star Trek does really well is it is it also shows that even if we have accomplished or gotten over our, our problems, society has, you know, if we enter like a post-social issue age, we Star Trek ultimately shows us maybe, especially in the more recent shows, in, in Picard and Discovery, maybe even a little bit in Enterprise, um, even though it takes place before the original series, shows that we are still victim, we, or we are still beholden to those issues perfect example with Picard. The big thrust of Picard is like androids and AI, right? But, and like them being not treated as, as, or the risk is if they were an actual people, they would be treated as second class citizens, right? That is what uh, uh, Khan, uh, what's Noonien Soong, his, Noonien Soong's son says in Picard, also played by Brent Spiner. And ironic, but like that was also a big issue in early seasons of of TNG, right? And that one episode where this uh, this like guy from Federation or Starfleet Science uh, basically says, "I need Data's right, right. positronic brain to do something," and then there's like a legal proceeding um, trying to figure out is Data property or is he a person, and thus can he, does he have agency over what occur happens to his own body? So, but like my point being. Both of those instances with Picard and TNG both show that there is still the same problem. The Federation is still suffering from the oh. same ills. And I think it sort of gives it gives I think it gives viewers permission 
to be like, oh, it's okay if we haven't gotten over issues Star Trek showed we gotten over. We still haven't gotten over systemic racism and, yeah. you know, and like tyrannical governments. But, but don't you think, like, if you look at the original Star Trek series, there was an attempt to show a time when people had kind of overcome that kind of systemic racism. No, but what I, I think... And now, especially if you look at Picard, there seems to be this sense of, I mean, if you, if you were to look... Um, from a continuity perspective of a serious regression uh, within the well, Federation. I like to... They seem to act more like we do now than they did in the next generation period. And again, so well, hold on guys, hold on guys. Are yeah. you guys talking about human, the human condition or are you guys talking about political conditions? And I know those two overlap greatly, but that's, that's, I think the, the, you guys are arguing different sides of the same coin. So I think you should clarify so what you, I... what you guys are, referring to so i would i would push i would not i'm not pushing back on what kind said when i'm really like so i'm just gonna highlight something there was an article in fan cited recently about or not recently maybe maybe over the last year or so about picard and basically it was i just googled in preparation for this topic optimism colon star trek right and the first link is a story from fan cited or one of the first links and it's basically uh, the even the cast of Star Trek Picard has said, like most of the new cast, like they don't, I don't they don't talk to uh, Jean, like uh, to Patrick Stewart or um, Brent Spiner or whoever else. Um, basically, they explain that as the world has changed, the content has had to change alongside it. So it is not so easy to put forth a what can be really boiled down to if you watch it now and you're v and you're a very cynical person if you watch like. Um, uh, Darmok and Jalada Tanagra, right? That phenomenal episode of TNG, probably one of my favorites, probably one of the best uh, absolutely. Of, TV, of, of television of all absolutely. time. Like, if you watch that episode now and you're extremely cynical, you're gonna think, no. If you was, if that was actually to happen to someone today, their first reaction to seeing some dude with a knife is to either run or sneak up on him with a big rock in your hand and Kill him. beat the shit yeah. out of him. And I, but I don't think, but like, you'd have to. I think you have to watch things in the context in which they were made and then ask yourself, is that, is that thing being optimistic? Well, and, you look at, but, but I mean, the sixties were a very turbulent time yet. They still managed to put out something that had a brighter view of the future. So they weren't simply taking what's happening in society and saying, Oh, look, 300 years from now, we're going to still be dealing with the same problems. So even though, yes, it is a it got you there. time right now, you got you there, even though it is, there's a lot of cynicism right now. Why Why do we need to embrace the cynicism and just say, oh, yeah, it's going to be exactly the same 300 years. 300 years from now, we're going to have the same problems. There's going to be cultural divides. There's going to be, um, you know, constant conflict. Um, why not so, try? Yeah. I think with I think with what we're I think we both agree that it's not that it, I think so. My I think the 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 uh, the the. Um, uh, the dissonance between our two viewpoints is that I'm saying it is not required, but it is not a, it is not essential, but it is required for it to be good. I think. Do the characters like, have to be? That's hopeful? what we're talking. About. The, we're not. The, we're, not ta we're not. We're not talking about. We're not talking about like what is whether it's. We're talking. We're not talking about anything else. Like, does it have to be optimistic for it to be good? Because it's Star Trek. If it's Star Trek, but I mean, does, are we talking about like, the plot or are we talking about the characters? 
because you can have pessimistic well, plots me, and optimistic. I think optimistic well, a, a, a story, a story's plot is its character, so I don't think you can separate the two. For me, I think what it comes down to is that the number of people that seem to have higher ideals and want to be better, it is kind of shrinking in newer Star Treks. It's like, well, before maybe there were people in Starfleet. It wasn't just the the, the crew of the Enterprise. Um, but now it feels like, oh, you know, if you're not one of those main characters, you, even on Picard, you've got main characters who's, who, 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 who themselves aren't optimistic. Now, to be fair, a character like Raffi has, has, you know, the character's been through a lot and a lot of that, some of that is due to Picard's own actions. But I, that alone is kind of one of my problems with it. Like even Picard himself seems to cause um, distress and, 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 and have a kind of a ruinous effect. Well, on that's just and being just, human. Right, think... but, but, but it almost seems like that's the, that, that's the main focus now. He ruined Rafi's life. He ruined the life of those Romulans on Vashti. Um, it just seems so pessimistic. And so, I mean, if I was to say, is it, is it an essential part of Star Trek to be but optimistic? The, but the arc of the show, but the arc of, but like, shows are made differently now. Picard is a single unbroken yeah. story. I can watch right. an episode yeah. of C as long as long as the as long as the uniforms are the same, I can watch an episode from season three of Star Trek and season seven of Star Trek, and they could and they are you can watch them back to back and not notice a difference, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. For the most part. If I if I can't do that with a show nowadays, I just can't. It's it, it is almost impossible to do that with a show. Unless it's a cartoon. And even even with cartoon with some cartoons if you're looking at like avatar the last airbender or like young justice you can't do that but if i took the arc of picard of the first season there's going to be a second season apparently the arc yeah. of picard is optimistic by the end they by like episode like i think like eight seven or eight there is an optimistic view of what is going to happen next by the same token the first few episodes of season three of Star Trek Discovery are, are like largely pessimistic, but they, while they give you gut punch after gut punch of like, whoa, and you're hoping for optimism. And then they give you like a, like a, a jab of, a, of like adrenal optimism, like whether it's um, like the end of episode two with, um, you know, with Michael showing up or in the more recent episode where, um, now this is a big spoiler, so I'm mad if you want to close your ears. Yeah, I'm gonna. Five. I'm gonna take no, out my yeah. headphones as well. I'm not that concerned. Actually, you know what? Yeah, so, or the most recent episode for Star Trek Discovery, where basically they discover that there is that they can find out what caused the burn if they go to uh, what is what Vulcan if they go to Vulcan, right? But Vulcan is no longer Vulcan. It's now called Navarre, and it's home to both Vulcans and Romulans. Oh, They're now called Romulo Vulcans, right? And basically, as because Michael is technically a citizen of Vulcan, because because she's Sarek's adopted right, daughter, right? Um, and she like watches footage, and like in early in the episode, she watches footage of Ambassador Spock. It's Leonard Nimoy. It's Leonard Nimoy's. It's it's, a, it's from one of the episodes he was in in TNG. Where he was on Romulus, redemption part, just the one, um, unification part two, yeah, yeah, and the episode is called Unification Part Three. Okay. Oh dear. And and she watches footage of him, and she begins to cry, and I was tearing up, and where they're talking about like how 
Romulans are Romulans then are where Vulcans were early in their history. Emotional, secretive, violent, all these things. And she basically has the ability, she, she since she attended the Vulcan Science Academy, um, basically to call some sort of like quorum or forum where she can basically make an argument of using absolute logic for getting this information she needs to uncover what caused the burn. But regardless of what happens in the interim, she real the council is a Vulcan, a Romulan, like a Romulan hardliner, a Vulcan hardliner, and then someone who keeps playing both sides who is half Romulan, half Vulcan. And she realizes if she continues with this, she will get what she wants, Michael will. But ultimately, she will... Uh, but her success will mean the like the breaking of these bonds of Rom between Romulans and Vulcans that have taken like 500 years to re to build, right? Like being between which, which like yeah. So she basically says she walks over to like this big cer like ceremonial gong and hits it and declares that she is withdrawing her 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 request and her this like uh, forum thing they're doing and ending it because. To, she says she says to continue it would to go against everything uh, Ambassador Spock and the Federation stands for. That is optimistic. And then at the end, the president of Navarre of like Vulcan gives her the information she wanted anyway because she proved her point that her intentions were pure. That that is that right there is one is pure Star Trek. Yeah, that that does sound like. 100% pure Star Trek. I will say and the I've new show... Thought, sorry, Matt, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, and I've always thought Michael was a very optimistic character, mm. so were a, a lot of characters on Discovery. The problem was, they seem to be the only ones to show any sort of, 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 of optimism or have any sort of, I mean, morality. I mean, I lost, I got, the reason I didn't care what you were going to say about season three of Discovery and, is because I wasn't sure I was going to watch more of it. And that sounds interesting. I may watch that. But they lost me when Starfleet decided to take the Emperor up on her suggestion and detonate a large bomb that will kill everybody on Kronos. That's not Starfleet. Now, that was season one, but they I, I was kind of checked out of Discovery as soon as I heard that. You're because, not the only one. Well, You're not the only one. I've heard somebody say the exact same thing. Because, yeah, Michael was optimistic. Michael is still optimistic. The crew of the Discovery is optimistic. But it seems like they're the only ones. In when I watched Next Generation, there were people like Admiral Doherty in Insurrection, who and I think he he was there were other members of Starfleet that supported him that were going to move. You know, they were going to move the what, what was their name? The um, it doesn't matter. Anyways, the, the the people on that planet. I think it's uh, the um, the nameless. Okay. Anyways, the, plot uh, the back who. The Baku, and yeah, that was that that that, that was certainly dark. Um, but I never got the feeling that that was kind of, you know, okay with Starfleet in general. There was also the cat, the Admiral and Ensign Rowe, who was kind of, you know, he was believing what the uh, what, what the Cardassians were saying that this 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 Bajoran had 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 um, was behind this terrorist attack, and really, uh, he wasn't. Um, but again, I didn't feel like that was. Starfleet. That was that was one person, and I I believe. So that, okay, but but in are that you using when, bad when, apple theory on Star Trek? That it was a few bad no, apples. It wasn't no. the system. 
No, I don't know. It could have been, but I never got the feeling that like the same feeling I got in that moment where she says, yeah, basically we're going to kill everybody on Kronos where it's like, wow, I will. there's not yeah. a single good person in this universe. Regard, just, just want to say this quickly about season three. Um, it really does feel like it's going back to those original Star Trek episodes where they're negotiating treaties and they're like making peace between races and they're not overstepping their bounds. They have to really hold on to the prime directive and all that stuff. So uh, I'm getting that feeling and it's a bit more episodic in that regard uh, for, for season three of Discovery. Go ahead, uh, Sam. Yeah. So I, yes. So I agree with you there, Kime. Season three is much more episodic and I think it'll being more episodic like there is an overarching plot, like story to the entire season. There's like a single goal they are striving towards. Mm -hmm. But every but every episode is much more self-contained than the season seasons one or two. They're doing side um, quests. Or even like Picard. Yeah, side quests. They're doing they're side have, they're, quests they can't go in a straight line. So so the 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 essential so your 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 question was is an optimistic view of the future essential to Star Trek? So not optimism of the future, right? And so it is the idea that with Discovery especially, they have had, they have had to bring optimism because they are coming from the era in which – so the, 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 from probably the end of Enterprise after the time skip all the way to like the end of TNG, there is a single probably unbroken line of the Federation always becoming – better and more lofty and larger and and they they aren't too big to fail yet right they aren't too big that if something bad happens it doesn't destroy everything and hurt everyone at least not immediately Except so the klingon war that they added in the first season of discovery well my, my i'm talking about I'm, I'm talking about yeah. i'm not talking about chronology i'm talking about like the up to up to the end of TNG and, and like yeah. and what happened in Enterprise, um, the I think my answer is is an is an optimistic view of the future. We are talking. We are not. We are referring to the future in which the future in which we hope to live. Right. If ever I'm feeling down, I say I just I just hold my hold my eyes closed and I just say Star Trek, Star Trek, Star Trek. You know, like that has to be you. We we have to fight for or work towards and work hard for that future so we can move on to the next problem, right? Because I think the, uh, an optimistic view of the future is essential to Star Trek, yes, because core to any viewing of Star Trek is that we have gotten over the problems that plague us today and but we are going to have other problems we can't even imagine in the future. I guess... Now that I'm, I'm kind of rethinking about about the, the thinking about the question again, I'm thinking maybe maybe the question was kind of poorly formed. Maybe it's not is an optimistic a view of the future essential because I mean basically all these Star Treks have an optimistic view of the future in the sense that humanity is thriving and that we're like this powerful force in in the universe. We've survived. We've you know um, we've triumphed over the problems of today. Maybe maybe for me. The issue comes down to, do I think people in general will be better 300 years from now than they are today? Will they, they have were better? Than, they're better than they are. They better. They're better now than they were 300 years ago when it was all pirates and colonialism and the height of the, the transatlantic slave trade. 
I guess I was thinking that's like a, that's a debatable statement, Sam, because people can just say it's but like it, no, but people but I'm saying say, the are but the people can just say it's not the people that have gotten gotten better. It's the, the the crimes are just being committed in a different way. But the but the we're not I don't want to get meta here, but the arc of history is that we are always getting better, but we will always be plagued by problems. You know, climate change is the biggest existential threat now. But a hundred years ago it was, you know, the Spanish I, flu. I arrived. think that depends. Or like I think thirty that, years from then it was polio and um, or it was of nuclear or it was nuclear Armageddon. Nuclear Armageddon is, isn't even in any isn't even on anyone's radar now. And it was just 25, 30 no, years ago. It was ago. on radar and like a few like, years ago when, when they people were talking about Trump's button, finger on the button. And it's it's still relevant. I think I think that point of view though, Sam, is really just that. It's a point of view because some people will say, Yeah, history's gotten better or humanity's gotten better over history. Some people will say, nah, it's kind of the same, but just it's a lot of the same, but in a uh, more dressed up form. That's it. It's not as raw as. But you're water. saying you're saying, but people. I don't. But like the question is about Star Trek, and do we think people? If that's if we if we take your point, and the, the answer to Kimes to, to to sorry, we take Kimes point on to Matt's question. The answer is no. It's just different. Yeah, they're not racist or sexist or destroying the environments anymore. But they're still species. They're still destroying different environments. They're still, you know. Yeah, and then and then nine hundred and then nine hundred and thirty years after that, now we're worried. Now we're focused. Now we're worried about governments. We're worried about organizations. We are prejudiced against organizations, and I think the prejudice and anger and fear. Does go away, but it does all. It all. It does also just shift to something new. Yeah. And I don't. But I don't think that doesn't mean people are still as bad as they were three hundred years ago. Well, that. But but my issue with with discovery was if you're going to do that to Kronos and the Klingons, then you are absolutely no better than 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 the people in centuries prior. Which was my biggest. Which is why I lost the connection to discovery. When you watch the original Star Trek and you watch Next Generation. A less so Deep Space Nine, again, and I think you can use Deep Space Nine as, as an example of the fact that Star Trek became less optimistic before Discovery and Picard. It's not that Discovery and Picard came out of nowhere and, mm-hmm. you know, Star Trek, nothing but optimistic before them. Uh, it's, it, it just, it seems like how people, like, the, the, the way, the, what the characters are willing to do, the kind of morality that governs the characters... I, 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 I see I see bigger issues in kind of those areas with the newer yeah. with the newer series than compared to Star Trek yeah. or Star Trek the next generation. Where it seemed like, especially when you when you look at Picard Picard, um, his character and especially how he's portrayed on the next generation, there's more of a focus on diplomacy. It's not like violence is kind of like the default setting. Um and so that was kind of a sense that, oh, people are getting better. So last thing I'll say, and then I'll ask you a question that is um, the best episodes of discovery are the ones, the best episodes of star Trek period are the ones that are very, have a very, that are very, very positive. It is whether it's um, uh, O'Brien helping out Vaughn. What was his name? That alien in the first season who was being hunted. And it was his species's fate to be hunted in DS nine. Um, cause I, I've, I've gotten back in DS9. I'm starting, I'm watching it finally. I can't remember his name. I think it was like Vok or something basically, or Vok or whatever basically says 
they basically decide they work together and he 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 hates that he has to accept that this guy will die and it is it is his fate to be hunted and die or otherwise he is greatly dishonored um and he accept, he has to he is forced to accept that but it's a good episode because it it shows that O'Brien in spite of the fact that his personal morality is being infringed upon he knows that it is the most moral thing he can do is accept that other people live their lives differently and he has to respect that and the same can be said probably the probably this most recent episode of Disco- discovery the best episode of discovery ever i will say without like not just because leonard nimoy is in it like b-roll from tng right as exactly. ambassador spock yeah but if you could if you cut that out and or you put in uh the actor who played spock in the second season of star trek discovery or you put in uh, uh zachary quinto you would have had the same effect um but that was all that's all i have to say um and then my question my last thing would be matt is is an optimistic view of the future essential to star trek <laughs> and i you know what i think and i think you might have even mentioned this at the very beginning uh when we were talking about it it's an essential element of good star trek um because like as you were saying uh i think the most powerful episodes even if there's some negativity in it there's a great deal of positivity and I, I for me yeah yeah i i think it's essential but evidence would show that maybe it's not at least in terms of if by optimism we're, we're framing it as people are better 300 years now in the future than they are now um but it is an essential part of good star trek i don't know okay. i kind of like i like cynical episodes what can i say <laughs> I I, um, I like let's call let's I like the episodes with Maquis and stuff that are a bit more raw and political in that regard, and it's sort of like oh, there's hope, but for who? Kind of. But it's not. Yeah. No, yeah, that's an maybe. interesting point. That that is an interesting point. There are some good good episodes that that that, that deal with the Maquis, but I would probably still c- classify those as not being as cynical as some of the cynicism I see. I, I've seen in, in, in moments in discovering. Okay. Absolutely. I, and that's probably why I'm one of the few Star Trek fans that will say, yeah, discovery isn't that bad. My turn, right? It is. Uh, it, um, so mine is pretty short and it is, I, so something I sort of didn't think I was going to be as passionate about as I now realize I am. And that is uh, Don Cheadle needs another chance as War Machine. Now, this is something I've thought about for a while. Uh, maybe over the last like four or five weeks, I've been rewatching a bunch of Marvel movies, MCU, uh, the Fox X-Men movies, even the Fantastic Four movies from Fox. God, that Silver Surfer, man. So good. Doug Jones says Silver Surfer. We love him as Saru. We love him as a Silver Surfer. My big point with Don Cheadle as War Machine is he's alive, first of all. he's not dead or missing um also i feel like we didn't really get his full potential right and we're not i'm I'm not talking about the fact that um or maybe i should be referring to the character of of roadie and not really don Cheadle. but don Cheadle's a phenomenal actor and i you know academy award nominee i think he deserves another chance as war machine um i do not think he could hold a movie just because the character of war machine is not that it's not supremely like he doesn't do a lot of stuff 
War Machine's whole thing is that he's always connected to the Avengers or he's connected to uh, Iron Man or Stark Industries yeah. or the U.S. government. But my my point with this is I believe that the character of War Machine could be a really good vehicle for other storytelling. And I think the perfect thing to summarize like how a movie with him would open or a TV show or whatever um, would be essentially him... Uh, he's sitting uh, around some table, and because they've introduced the character of Thaddeus Ross, uh, of Th- the Thunderbolt Ross, and he's he's going to be in Black Widow, he was in uh, uh, Civil War. Uh, basically, having them sitting on a table next to at a table across from each other, basically saying him saying to Rhodey something along the lines of, "You could be where I am in five years, and you could be in the White House in ten years." Because in Civil War number zero, Civil War two number zero. There's a scene where he is talking to a the U.S. president, and it was later revealed that it was Obama. And basically, the U.S. president says to yeah. him, "There will come a time. There will come a time when Tony Stark wants to run for president." And he, they basically frame him as like the Donald Trump here, and basically saying like, "You're going to have to be there to not only run against him or convince him to not run, but you have to be there to win as well." And I think that the character of Rhodey, while maybe not, we wouldn't see him in a political position. I think that the movie being somewhat more of a political thriller would be good. Like a big part of the reason people loved Witcher Soldier, it's still at the top of most people's lists, most mm-hmm. people's lists for superhero movies, for MCU movies, is because it is a political thriller in some sense of the word. Now with Rhodey and War Machine, I think there's potential there. For him to be in a movie or for him to be in a very mate like a, a leading role but he wouldn't necessarily the movie wouldn't be like necessarily a war machine film you know like the movie could be um you know war the war machine and hulk or the war machine and black widow and they use professor hulk or they knew use florence Pugh's new black widow or they you know um you do something there there is something there and i think i'm right and i think there's potential okay. even though don Cheadle's contract has ended but fuck they could renew it chris hemsworth renewed his contract with disney why couldn't don Cheadle? could i just pose a question to you before before we get into this okay it, do you think that well no it's not even a, sorry it's not a question the, no marvel movie is a standalone movie anymore like every it's a, because they have the shared universe you know that um, you can't have a War Machine movie without him running into somebody from S.H.I.E.L.D., without him running into okay, the, the Avengers. But centric. So that's centric. Something, of course, of course centric. And I have to agree, yes, it has to be a political thriller, in a, or it has to be like a military political thriller, like um, the superhero version of A Few Good Men. Like, you know, that that's essentially what that's I good. can picture a... Like, you know, he's doing an investigation on a S.H.I.E.L.D. soldier that's been killed or something like that. You know, that's, uh, I agree with those points. Yes, I would, I would totally be into a movie like that then. I would almost uh, also love, there was a recent Punisher arc, maybe in the last 18 months. Matt had something. Matt, you had something. No, no, sorry. I, um, I mean, I will just, I will just join in and say, yes, I really like that idea of, uh, kind of a few good men kind of inspired. I think that would be really interesting to see. Um, yeah, and I, but I, and I would also agree with you, Sam, that I can't see him carrying a film just solo. But depending on who you put him with, it could be quite yeah. interesting. Even like with like Winter Soldier, like Cap was the star of that film, but then like Black Widow and like was right there, right behind him, and Falcon was right there, right behind her, and then 
Bucky was there as well. And then Nick, Nick Fury and Mariah Hill were in it too. And you got some stuff with Crossbones. And I think with... Uh, T'Challa? In, in in Winter Soldier. he That was Civil War, dude. That was, that was Civil War? Oh, shit. You're right. Yes. You're right. My bad. My bad. I will. I haven't I will seen them in a while. Confisc- I will come to your house and steal your nerd card. Um, but like, I think, I think with, uh, a movie more along the lines of like a, you could do something like very cat and mouse thrillery, you know, like war machine is, or Don Cheadle or Don Cheadle, James Rhodes, because he is war machine. He has sort of been saddled with, uh, be serving as like the Herald or the, the curator of like Stark tech and Stark industries and Iron Man tech and the Iron Legion and everything. Um, at the, for the time being until, you know, until, um, Tony's daughter comes to a point where she can like take over for him or they figure, or Pepper Potts figures out what she's doing with the Iron Legion or something along those lines. And I think, but like, we're setting up like a cat and mouse thriller where he can, he's chasing someone like the Punisher or the new Black Widow as perfect. It would be a perfect way to introduce the new Black Widow, um, or a way to, a film with him in which Rhodey was basically very, was forced in a way he hasn't had to in the past contend with the fact that he is like a company man with his identity as a superhero. I mean, the, it's a good character. You ha- he's part of the military. He's part of the Avengers. He's been part, he's part of shield. There's so many different directions they can take it. I would probably say, let's see how, you know, it's, you put him in the right situation and you could get a good movie out of him and you can get, you'll get good acting out of a Marvel movie for sure, but you need good writers to, to write a story that you can care about him. You know, that's, I think the biggest uh, thing is getting that proper storyline for him. It's also possible that he gets used in some capacity to kind of like facilitate the introduction of like maybe another of a new character, perhaps one that's like not the X Men or something like that, because obviously they they don't need any help getting introduced nope. to the to the MCU. But you know, maybe like and you've mentioned before, like if you brought in Iron Lad or something like that, you yeah. could always. I think there is potential in when they eventually introduce the X Men, because it'd be very easy to slot the mutants into the position of where the Inhumans are in Civil War Two, and you could make it like. Uh, a Captain Marvel movie because Captain Marvel and Iron Man are lead the two factions in that one and yeah. it'd be very easy to slot Rhodey into where Iron Man is and it'd be even better because the big crux in, in the preceding comics of Civil War 2 Carol and Rhodey had developed a relationship and while I don't yeah. think it would be like I don't I don't think they need a relationship between two existing Avengers at the moment I don't think it would like like do much for this for the mcu i also think it would be a little ham-fisted to make like captain marvel's or brie larson's captain marvel like fall in love with Rhodey. it like it doesn't it wouldn't make a lot of sense i think like she's he's the only character i can think of that they were ever in a relationship together and i think it works in the comic in the comics Mm -hmm. maybe they find a way to make it work in the movies but my point is i think there is potential there for them to bring in like the mutants and or bring in Inhumans again, although I think they're going to leave their hands off of Inhumans then, for a while. Then you would have Rhodey. Then you would have Rhodey as the liaison between the X Men and the U.S. government 
as the human well like I, it's not not, not even unnecessary no not even not even something along those lines very much where the presence of a third party is perfect for is a is a perfect like uh storytelling vehicle for Rhodey as the protagonist and for a third party whether it's captain marvel whether it's like i don't know like uh thunderbolt ross res red hulk or whoever else to be the oh the god antagonist. no i hope they don't bring red hulk into that into <sighs> you're crazy oh. it'll be amazing it'll be amazing uh, uh. mustachioed mustachioed uh. hulk oh my god <laughs> i'd only be in it for the memes um who is a strong a war machine villain i think because that's going to be I a think... that's a considerable part of the marvel movie mythos is that they have some of the best villains um that a hero has ever had to take on and i think that's part of uh that would definitely be a critical element of so this so i don't think i think i think it, he is because he is war machine is the the in your face hero like i think that's who he is like Rhodey as a military man, he cares about he cares about honor and integrity. And I think putting him up against a force that is either very that is subversive to that in any way you can think of would be perfect. That's why, like when he and Tony are in scenes together, there's very good interplay. Because Tony doesn't he breaks the law openly, he does what he wants, he does what he likes, damn the consequences. He'll figure, you know, better to ask for forgiveness than forgiveness than permission. A big part of the reason in Civil War in the, the movie why War Machine sought why Rhodey sides with Tony isn't because they're friends, although it may play a small role, isn't because he disagrees with Cap, it's because he's in the military, he's a government man, he has an obligation to follow the law. Yeah. Right? And then it's because he followed Tony that he lost the use of his legs. And you you could frame it very much so in that way. Film so basically, like, are you saying Iron Man? Oh, sorry, War Machine going rogue? Well, War Machine is in a position where he he did everything he was supposed to. He followed the letter of the law. He he took his orders and did what he was told, and worked his way up the chain of command. So he maybe he can make a change on the inside. Whatever you, however you want to frame it, because because it would be a very a military like a military thriller, you know. Yeah. But then someone someone who gives no shits uh like fucked him up like just about him you know like a movie like shooter is is a lot like this or okay uh iron uh what is it um war machine disavowed would sound like an awesome movie title war machine yeah. disavowed it does. Uh, and it's basically or, or he on becomes, the... or like in the comics he becomes iron man for a time he takes on the mantle that wouldn't be bad. I would not mind seeing Don Cheadle as Iron Man. That would be yeah. fine with me. I, I just think there is potential there. I, I wasn't on board with this when you brought it up earlier, but now after this conversation, yes, I can I can see the potential behind something like this. I was going to say, I mean, I guess in terms of him um, taking up the mantle of Iron Man, it would determine what other films that you've come out with around the same time. Like, you don't... You would, would you... Okay, would you see like a particular phase of movies where like he takes up the mantle of Iron Man and Falcon takes up the mantle of Captain America and somebody takes up the mantle of Black Widow? Would you put that all in the same hey. phase, or would you or would you try and spread that out so that it doesn't kind of seem like well, you know, the the next the next MCU movie to come out is Black Widow, and that's happening, right? 
Um, right. WandaVision comes out in December. I think uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier will come out in March, where there's like there like you they brought the U.S. agent is in it in the the fact that they can take over there will be characters taking over mantles and then a big mm. part of the interplay in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is going to be the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. They have decided that Sam is Sam Wilson is going to be. Is going to be, he's still Falcon, but he's going to be Captain America. But he's having to contend with the fact that the U.S. government has now sanctioned a new super soldier who's going by the name U.S. Agent to be the Captain America, like, the Captain America replacement. U.S. Agent's an actual, like, Marvel comics character. I could see a circumstance in which, you know, there was, due to whatever reason, the, uh, the, the technology of... Tony Stark, the Iron Man tech is at risk of being not just like the physical tech being stolen. That's that will never happen. But some it, the 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 mantle of Iron Man is at risk of being taken from the memory of Tony and given to someone else without any measure of like permission structure for the person or from like Tony's side of things. And I think basically uh, Rhodey being put into a position where I owe the memory of my best friend. I owe this to the memory of my best friend that I become Iron Man. So this this government sanctioned person or this you know person who works for AIM or Hammer Tech or whoever or Hydra doesn't take over and like mar the memory of Iron Man because of their actions. Well, it also depends on who would. Yeah, but the Iron Man armor is private property. Um, Tony said so himself, the, uh, the war machine armor is property of the U.S. government, so they can decide who war machine is, but they don't get to decide who, uh, who Iron Man is. That would be like Pepper yeah, they could, or something. But they could, they could do something that they could do something. I'm saying like that Rhodey's put in a position where he has to. Yeah. It's either you do what you you either break the law or you or you allow the memory of your friend to be now marred. I got one for by, you. You know, the image is a lot different when Iron Man isn't down in Afghanistan shooting terrorists. It's when he's in Afghanistan. Hmm. He's blowing up city blocks like um without a care in the world of the civilian casualties. That in right. it's a scene in Iron Man where it shows him targeting the terrorists. So he doesn't accidentally shoot the innocent hostages. What would you say for a war machine plot? Do you think it would make sense for Marvel to do war machine and the Thunderbolts? Explain who I'm just, who were the Thunderbolts? I can't remember. Was it the Thunderbolts? Um, they were the bad I'm guys. Doing... Who, was it Thunder something? So I'm doing a quick something. Google search. I'm doing yeah. a quick Google search and let's look at the roster list. Okay. So Atlas slash Goliath. So a Goliath has been in it. He was played by, uh, I believe he was played by, uh, uh, what's his face? By Bill Foster, Lawrence Fishburne. Let's see. Citizen V Baron Zemo. He's in it. Uh, That's the original. So I'm all, I've seen Hawkeye. Clint Barton is in it. Fine. All of these characters are, I don't know any of these characters. Vantage, Photon, Joystick. Let me Bullseye, elaborate. Green Goblin, Venom, but there are, but they're all none of them are the original people, right? Right. Uh, or okay. very so few of them are. Originally, originally, Thunderbolts was reintroduced in the '90s as a comic book about 
villains posing as heroes. And eventually, the, uh, like, you know, for reasons, uh, some of the heroes actually enjoy being, sorry, some of the villains enjoy being heroes. And stuff happens. Later How on is this? in the 2000s, later on in the 2000s, uh, the Thunderbolts was recreated under Luke Cage reforming villains uh to serve missions so it was luke cage uh leading a team of and i think the u.s u.s agent led them as well for a while but essentially they're a group of villains that get a chance to reduce their sentences by serving the military or shield or whoever juggernaut was trying so it's uh, so it's it's marvel suicide bingo. squad i could have you probably should yeah i probably should have just said that but well, yeah, so so War Machine but, leading that. How is that? But how is that? But the Thunderbolts are villains. War Machine yeah. is not. Oh, Rhodey is not a villain. Exactly. Neither was Luke so Cage. But like, Luke but he's Cage. not. But like, you're what you're what you're saying is make Rhodey the Rick Flag of the MCU, and Rick Flag is kind of an asshole. Rhodey is who? the guy who leads the Suicide Squad. Their military guy, Joel Kinnaman's character oh. in the movies. Yeah. I like, barely remember the I movie. Fun, I fundamentally disagree with you. Like, really? Rhodey, he couldn't lead a team of supervillains. He's not a, He's not even close to being a supervillain. No, I could but see, neither was Luke no. Cage. Bottom line Hard is, disagree. It, Hard disagree. I would, but well, okay, so just, I'm just saying, last thing that I'll say here, imagine the banter between Rhodey and some of those villains. But it would like, be hilarious. Literally, none of those people have been introduced yet. It would be a great way to introduce some of them. Mm. But like, but none of you, this is this is the this is the my crossbones could be in it. Uh, if crossbones he's still is alive. dead. He's dead. Oh, did he like dead? He was dead blown or up. Dead. He was blown. Okay, up. I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. Have you watched it? Have you watched a Marvel movie? Of course, <laughs> I've watched them all. I just don't remember them all. How you, you you thought T'Challa was in Winter Soldier? I just get uh, some of those so this mixed is, this up. Is, this is this is a good segue into the next one. The, 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 into our. Oh, next we still got a bit of time. We, we still get a, got a bit of time. And and Matt, you had some. No, I'm I'm. Uh, what's well? This is bring it back to my topic. What are you gonna say, Matt? Oh no no! I it, it was it was simply commenting on 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 Kai's idea. I was thinking like yeah, he's not a supervillain yet, but after he you know refuses the government request to take the Iron Man armor, then becomes disavowed. And, you know, once we go through all these stories we've talked about, we could get him to a supervillain yeah. status. I don't want to see him as a supervillain, though. He's a no. good guy. I like, I think, so my final pitch is this. It's not, Don Cheadle needs another, needs to be War Machine again. Ro War yeah. Rhodey needs to appear again. If he doesn't appear in at least mo one movie outside of an Avengers film, it would be a, mm. a huge loss. You know, I like we as the viewers if you did, need. If him you do a movie like the war, war, the war, war Machine and the Black Widow, you know, and you do it's or Iron Man and Black Widow or War Machine and the Black Widow, and it's about how Rhodey becomes Iron Man, and it's about how uh, Florence Pugh's Yelena Belova—that's her name—I just had to, I just had to remember it. How she becomes, she doesn't is she isn't just Black Widow in name now; she's Black Widow in mantle as she's recognized as the new Black Widow by the wider. Avengers community, right? Because like superheroes, yeah, except for Spider-Man, aren't really upfront in the MCU. 
Yeah. So I would. Say I think like a film should... like that, it would be would be perfect. And you you sprinkle in some Thunderbolt Ross. Maybe he's not Red Hulk, but you sprinkle in some of that. So you sprinkle in some uh, a little bit of Clint Barton, maybe because he like he passes on the mantle. Like you can be Black Widow now. It's okay. You don't have to like ask for permission and all that shit. You know, you sprinkle in some. Yeah, Professor I could Hulk. see that. I could you see know, that. There's something there. There's something there, and if they don't make a Don, another a movie with Don Cheadle in a major role. It is a huge loss. All right. So, uh, considering we just talked about optimism as a central ethos to Star Trek stories, and figuring out ways to gift uh, viewers more War Machine stories on screen. What do you think makes them so strong in the first place and relatable to so many people? In, in terms of what, what makes them so strong, at least for me, is their interconnectivity. I love the, um, just, just the fact that things that happen in one movie have a bearing on things that happen in a different character's movie. And I mean, as somebody who, uh, and I kind of touched on this in our Star Trek discussion, and it's going to come up constantly for me, to whom continuity is very important, I think, at least on the film side, as long as you don't try and put in the Netflix shows or uh, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or anything, if you're just trying to put together the movies, they fit together pretty well. Um, it always bothered me that like they had to recast, um, you know, Bruce Banner. But but generally, I just I, I just love the kind of universe they've created because they've really been the first to do it on that kind of scale. Uh, obviously, DC tried and and not having as much success, but we'll see what happens there. Um, but that's what always drew me to them is that I, you can always kind of get a little bit more info on the world, how things are progressing by watching the next film, even if it's a different character. Uh, my point would be in, would be very, not, not similar at all, but like it would be that they, they leaned into Feige, John Favreau, the guys who started this with Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and The Incredible Hulk. I can't remember the name of the director of The Incredible Hulk at the moment. But when they they really leaned into with most of their heroes, the they leaned into the facts. And the facts is they don't have a large like a cavalcade of gods in their heroic pantheon. Mm. Right? Like DC. They have Superman and Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and The Flash and Batman and uh, all these heroes, Dr. Fate, who are so supremely powerful or influential, whether through power or ability or influence or money or whatever, on their own, they can hold franchises, right? Mm -hmm. Superman held Superman had held multiple franchises before Henry Cavill. Batman held many franchises before uh, Ben Affleck. Just look at the the, the Chris yeah. Nolan trilogy, yeah. of course. With D, with the MCU, they did the smart thing. They leaned into the fact that most of their heroes, or their heroes, were developed to not be these super these heroic gods, you know. Captain America is the guy that's strong Thor. and fast. Thor is an actual <laughs> god. But, uh, but like, if you... So, think of the heroes. So, who yeah. are the big, super powerful, can fight cosmic threats on their own? Captain oh, Marvel. Uh, Captain Marvel. Oh, Thor. Yeah. Yeah. And... I'll, I'll throw in Scar... I'll throw in Vision and Scarlet Witch. 
other than that, you these people. My cat is being very loud because he wants attention. But the <laughs> Cap and Black Widow and Iron Man, they can't face shit on their own. They need their allies. Hulk, mm. uh, Hawkeye, come on. Like, even Green Arrow has, like, plenty of gadgets and lots of money, right? Hawkeye's just got the arrows. And I think that's some, there's something to be said for the fact that they decided, they decided to lean into that. Yeah. And they want to frame their heroes as the underdog. And you know what happens? You always root for the underdog. And you want to make a movie where, not from the very beginning, your people are rooting for your heroes. At the very at the start of Iron Man, Tony Stark is a is a booze swilling, whoring son of a bitch who all, and all he does is drink and fuck and uh, you know blow up villages in Afghanistan, right? Or his weapons do, and he doesn't give a shit, right? And he even admits to walking in the same circles as as a guy like Ulysses Claw does when Age of Ultron came out. Yeah. Right. And I think but you still you are still given reason and good reason too from the very start of the first Iron Man movie to root for him. And I think like that's their ethos. Their ethos is to make underdogs and make really interesting, enjoyable underdogs of that. Mm -hmm. I think it helped that they they didn't have the rights to the X-Men. They didn't have the rights to Spider-Man. So they had to adapt some characters uh, that, I mean, a, a lot of people weren't familiar with. And that kind of necessitated them to come up with ways to make them appealing, to make them likable. And yeah, by positioning them as underdogs, um, did just that. If, if they had gone straight into bringing in characters like the X-Men and everything, I don't think they'd be nearly as successful now as they are. That makes sense. And I mean, that's, uh, that that was true. That like they really did build the franchise. What do you think? Um, and and yeah, the connectivity definitely um, built the characters up together. There there there's a lot of interrelations. You don't uh, you don't none of the characters really stand on their own. Uh, in some ways, I mean, they can have their own movies, but that shared universeness, that sense of sharedness, uh, is is probably what. You know, I, I agree with that point. Just to go off that point, just a quick thing. I think that's a strength of Marvel that DC won't ever have. Because with DC, it's like Gotham is Batman's domain. Metropolis is Superman's domain. Coast City is Green Lantern's domain. Central and Keystone are the Flash's domain. Mm -hmm. And so on and so forth throughout, the every, throughout every major hero. Like, there are certain, like, if it's in the water... It's almost as if they develop their story and then they decide what hero they're going to put in the story, right? If yeah. it's some watery yeah. shit, okay, we'll go with Aquaman. If it's some mythological magic shit, okay, we'll go with uh, Superman so we can show him, like, broken down because he can't fight against magic, or we go with Wonder Woman. Or, or if Shazam. It's some weird sci -fi... Sorry? Or Shazam. Or Dr. Fate. Yeah. Like, with Marvel, they can develop around a hero. They don't have to develop around a villain. I think that may be a strength of having, like shitty villains in most of your films or non-memorable villains in most of your films that, that is a solid point but these are but does that does that lead to a central ethos like uh optimism is what i'm asking is there a value that needs to be present uh within 
these movies. I mean, interconnectivity, I think, is a, is a narrative uh, device. It does allow the characters to function differently than, say, a DC movie or something like that. But uh, is there a is there a element like is 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 optimism part of a Marvel movie? No, I think that the we're not of course superhero films are art. That's not what we're, I'm where I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. But there are certain there are certain superhero movies, especially of the past like 15 years, that are very artistic. Mm-hmm. Movies like the Joker, movies like the Batman oh, trilogy. Yeah the dark knight trilogy um even like even batman v superman and, and man of steel to a certain extent whereas with and whereas those really reward you for paying attention to the one film and understand like being able to appreciate lighting and mm-hmm. theme and like interplay of things like inside the movie what Marvel, the MCU specifically really rewards you for is it rewards a fan for their loyalty, which really you could have been a fan of something before, but even something like the big franchises that were coming out before 2007, you, you weren't getting rewarded like that. You know, no. there wasn't such, it is raw fan service when in uh, Age of Ultron occurs and Cap nudges Mjolnir and Chris Hem- and Thor is freaked out because he's like, oh shit. And then in Endgame, Thundercap happens and he's wielding Mjolnir and Thor's first reaction is, I'm so proud. Or when, yeah. you know, at the end of Iron Man, the end of Iron Man, Tony Stark says, the fact of the matter, the truth is I am Iron Man. And at the end of Endgame, the last thing he ever says is, I am Iron, Iron Man. Man. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, what, literally Iron Man 2, he has Cap's shield right with him. Uh, and, yeah. he, and he and they kind of like give a middle finger to the Easter egg hunters there, which was was very nice. Uh, but the, the the next thing I'd say is that the the I would say the ethos of Mar of Marvel storytelling, what Feige is doing is he wants to deliver to the fans. He wants to deliver to the people who are going to watch. And well, yeah, it's about the money for Disney and the higher ups. A guy mm-hmm. like Feige cares about putting on a good show and. Uh, he cares about giving the fans not what they want, what but what they more important than that, what they deserve, right? Mm-hmm. And we as the fans deserved a good ending to the MC uh, to the the Infinity Saga, mm-hmm. which we got mm-hmm. in Endgame in so many ways. Agreed. Okay. It was a perfect book. If they never made another Marvel movie, yes, it yes. would have been the yes. perfect ending, right? And that can't be said about a lot of bookending bookend films, right? No. And you I can say, <laughs> uh, but like what, but like you can't. And I think that, uh, while optimism could be said to be the ethos, I think the central value of the MCU, in my opinion, the central value of the MCU is that our central value is whatever our central value needs to be to make the best movie possible about a certain character who is practically before we made it scraping the bottom of the barrel like the guardians of the galaxy were not some popular no, thing no they were, they were not a, they were a shitty comic from the 70s that was a pale comparison to something like the new gods or the eternals you know and but then they can also take something like 
a hero like Black Panther that was relevant when he came about that could only be more relevant now. Um, and a character like that can always, you can always slot them into a certain like yeah. time of the world. Iron Man was so perfect because he isn't just a war profiteer. He's a war profiteer to a war that at that time had been going on for like five years and that Americans and people all over the world really were so tired of already. And Bush wasn't even out of office yet. That's right. That's and right. They, they put it on your movie screen and they showed you Iron Man killing terrorists. And that's why I go back. I watched Iron Man again like five or four or five weeks ago, and it was fucking awesome, just like it was the first time I watched it. Oh, absolutely. Is there a formula or is there an element of iron that you saw in Iron Man, that very first Iron Man? And yes, the second Nick Fury showed up at the end, we knew it was all over for DC. Um, but is there an element yeah. in Iron Man that you saw a thought like i believe that it's marvel basically said no 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 no. you're not we're not bringing our heroes into the world you're coming into our world where there just happen to be heroes so you know sit down and shut up and love it and we said okay um is there an is to me that's it is that they always bring you into the hero's world they don't bring the hero into our world uh, so that's what I'm kind of getting at. Is there something in each of the movies that you guys see? Matt, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, because, you know, when you when you gave that example of like, you know, them saying, you know, shut up and love it. I was thinking that's kind of really something when you think about it, that Marvel doesn't simply just do. They tailor, like Sam said, they come up with stories and ways to develop these characters that they think are going to interest the fans. They're not necessarily interested in like, well, you know, this might be the artistic choice, but, you know, people are really going to hate it. So let's do it anyways. They're like, no, this would be really cool. Like, what if, you know, at the end of Endgame, Cap can wield Mjolnir? I always have trouble saying that. Their, 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 their focus is on... They're making them accessible. Yeah, they're making them accessible. And they're trying to give people what they want to see. And I think that ties into the idea of optimism in, in these films. Well, first of all, you're not going to introduce Iron Man for the first time or um, or cap or something like that, and already put them in a really bad place. I mean, you're just introducing them. You're you're trying to show them, you know. While while I guess Iron Man is not in a great place, at the, uh, Tony Stark isn't in a great place at the start of Iron Man. The point is, you're trying to show them being built up because this is the first time they've been introduced. And the fact oh, I see the fact that you have. Yeah, I mean, like, with Superman, you can be like, we're doing a new Superman movie. Well, we've done Superman a million times. What can we do that's different? Well, what if this time, like, he actually kills somebody? I mean, there's room to play around a bit more with those characters because we've seen them so many times. With Iron Man, this was the first time he'd been put on screen live action. So mm -hmm. there was a, a more concerted effort to build him up along with other characters. And I think that's just translated into a lot of other other films in the MCU and the fact that they're all connected means there's not really, it's going to be hard to have a bunch of films in this shared universe that are more upbeat or have a more positive message. And then all of a sudden try and shoehorn this one, one movie in that's like super depressing and super dark, not impossible. Um, but I think just the kind of films that they've already made in this universe lend kind of, 
lead them. So, to- so you're saying that the theme that the, the theme that you're noticing is that the heroes, um, the the rise of the hero is, and and for their own personal reasons, is the strength of the Marvel movies. Uh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's times like it, it's not a, a complete ride. You know, it, it, it's not like they're always being built up, but generally, the yeah. Whole- to make them look. Well, I mean, not- I think I, your theory, your theory is like perfect. It describes the way they handled Spider-Man perfectly. Is the fact that they didn't yeah. build him up again. And I think that I think that they're they're like basically like giving us everything we want, and then not being afraid to knock us down because then it would make sense, not in the artistic place, but because for the sake of the story, not be because it would be so good or the the counteraction to that bad would be so good like i don't i cannot remember but we didn't know infinity war was going to end with us with like them losing we didn't know it was going to end with uh, a sad ending we knew there would be an infinity war part two but we didn't know what the context was of course because we didn't know anything about infinity war all we knew is that the Guardians of the Galaxy were going to be in it too, and we were going to get every major hero that had been in it, every hero that had been introduced. And with, like, with that in mind, their ethos has probably evolved to: we want to showcase these beloved heroes, and especially now, um, as heroes that are in comics are probably gonna, like every marvel hero is now under uh the disney and the mc in the mcu at least in some half and half right because the- spider-man's kind of half and half namor's kind of ha- namor reverted back finally um you know the x-men are there again for the first time but I and think- it's gonna be it's gonna be about them i think now it's about them how are we going to consistently deliver while we are going to be flooding the market, you know, the, the, the norm for the past couple of years, not counting 2020 was doing like two releasing two or three of these movies a year, Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. And starting in 2021, probably for and through to 2030, we're going to be getting like four or five Marvel movies a year. That's because X-Men's coming in, Fantastic Four's coming in. They're going to do some stuff. They're going to do, do like little things. Then there's like on top of that TV shows, we've got Moon Knight and Loki and, she-Hulk and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision. And do you think and they'll all- be able to put that same Marvelness, that same magic oh, that we saw in Iron Man? Do you think they're going to be able to transfer what's, that to oh, all of this? Magic? What's the magic, right? The thing, the magic of DC is that the we is that they are trying to paint this literal god into our world. Yeah, that's the big issue with that's. Some people have that issue with Superman. How can he be an enjoyable figure when he's so supremely powerful? Well, he has a strong moral center. He has values that are very important to him, so he has to contend with mixing those values. And that's not up for debate. Superman is a phenomenal character. And anyone who says, who doesn't like Superman, has never read a Superman comic or seen anything with Superman. They're saying that completely at face value. But the Marvel movies are not about that the marvel movies are about putting the hero into our world and making it make and not making it make sense but just sort of letting the ripples happen there were no heroes and then there was iron man and then there was 
uh, and then the Hulk, and then there was, um, uh, who was the third one? There was Thor, but it was an isolated event. It was only in New Mexico, and Shield was able to keep it quiet. Mm-hmm. And Shield is probably one of the single greatest story. Shield in the MCU, oh, yeah, is Absolutely. probably one of the single greatest and most useful storytelling mechanics of all time. They're a shadowy uh, government organization that is technically public, but they have they're more secretive than the CIA and more and have more and more powerful than you know the NSA and the FBI combined. And they can use and they were able to use Shield in early seasons to basically say people knew Captain America, but he was just a propaganda piece. Mm-hmm. He wasn't actually out there fighting Nazis and Hydra. Hydra, they weren't real. They were a myth, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know, and having and making the Ten Rings as like m- the Mandarin, and now they're doing actual Mandarin with the Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Lou, also Toronto. Um, four one six. The yeah, four one six. Uh, they are basically putting a terrorism. Terrorists have been in the American and the Western zeitgeist. For six and a half years at that point when Iron Man came out. Yeah, that's true. And in framing the bad guys as the Ten Rings, but then the ultimate bad guy ends up being someone profiting from the suffering of others. You know, it wasn't the the, the terror the terrorists weren't the villain. And that kind of like subversiveness was all is also arguably about what the what the MCU is about. The villain is never who you think it's gonna be by the very end. Other thing that I think um, you know, is a big element of the Marvel universe is that, okay, so if the heroes get knocked down, like, let you know, at the end of Infinity War, it's it's an external threat that's knocked them down. Like, we're not, it's, it's not necessarily something internal, and now we're going to see, like, the character at their absolute worst, and we're going to have them do things that, like, are seem kind of out of character, and that maybe a lot of people aren't going to like. Um, they try to I mean, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before. They're trying to design, they're trying to to show these characters kind of at their best generally. And 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 even if there's a time where they're they're not at their best, you still get that payoff where you get to see that cool moment. They're like they're fully formed heroes. Yeah. They're not they're yeah. there is a little to no heroic journey actually taking place. Yeah. I, I would say they're not just fully formed heroes. I would say they're also very fully formed characters. And I think that's what Stanley Dan Lee's ethos was in creating a lot of these characters was that they weren't perfect. They were people before they were super people. And I think mm-hmm. that's that. I, and I think that's what makes, uh, that's a big part of what makes Marvel movies different is that they brought Marvel in to consult. And yeah. whereas DC, it's just uh, Warner brothers, like sifting through uh, the offices and saying, this one looks good. Um, quick, send that one down to marketing. Let's make a movie out of it. That's a big weakness of that's a big weakness of DC. You know, they really they don't. Have, it doesn't seem like they have one, support from with, with DC. With DC, you could have entire you could have entire sagas of films and never have the hero interact with another hero. Yeah. Um. The, the Justice League movie is made all the better. With Avengers, I think they've the fact that their heroes on their own are not super impressive mm-hmm. you know in every one of these they have like a very very strong supporting cast mm-hmm. if you look at like the dark knight or like the bat the dark knight trilogy he has uh what alfred 
Jim and Lucius Fox, but they aren't like on the field helping him, right? It's only him. They didn't even and get Robin. Yeah, even in the quintessent, the, the, even in like the first Iron Man movie, like he's got, or not the first Iron Man movie, I should say, I should say the first Captain America movie. He's got, you know, the Howling Commandos and Bucky working with him on the ground. He's got yep. Agent Carter working with him. He's got uh, Howard Stark working with him. I think what that. you're saying is that Marvel movies seem to be more ensemble-based rather than, than singular yeah, focus. A show, a show like, a show like, I don't know, like How I Made Your Mother is going to be better than, is always, in my opinion, a better film show than Friends. Because Friends is like, like you could cut joey and phoebe out of the show and the show wouldn't change that much oh i disagree i don't think you could cut joey out i will i, I will agree with, with if you cut with how my mother if you cut out any one of the five of them the show is a fundamentally different show same thing with seinfeld you really couldn't cut same thing with seinfeld same thing with it's i guess you could say an ensemble was a better than when there was yeah, you could say the same thing about ninja turtle um you could get rid of donatello you, could get rid of donatello. you he made all their gadgets you I'm shut your whore mouth you I, shut your whore mouth. You cannot get rid of Donatello. He had. They're ninjas. They don't need gadgets. They need knives and their fists. They are turtle ninjas. They need their car. They need their van. Fighting the. No. You can't fight the Technodrome without any gadgets. But you could make. No, that's not true. Bitches. Yeah, it's not. You're you're fine. You're right. You we don't need Donatello. We don't need Mikey. We don't need Mikey. Mikey is useless, and Raphael doesn't have any patience. So I'd say Raphael is the most useless. Raphael is like the leader of the team now in the current canon. Good. And like he's older. Raph is like, Raph is the most complex, I think. Leonardo is like, uh, Raph is like not brooding. Leonardo, or Raph is just angry. Leonardo is like needlessly broods. Wait, how did Raphael get, uh, this this is a segue. How did Raphael get to get into that leadership position? I think because they like frame them as like they they are brothers, yeah. But they are actually diff- there are vast differences in age. Uh, like Raph is like the oldest. Leonardo and Donatello are twins, and Mikey's the kid, the baby. Okay. Um. But yeah, I'm I'm I'm. I think with Marvel, there. It's going to be interesting to see how they expand and how they keep consistent keep releasing consistently good films because there have been some stinkers yeah you know the the, the first two thor in my opinion thor and thor the dark world uh iron man 3 or one uh, wasn't that bad civil war uh age of ultron uh and um wait ant-man ant-man and the wasp they should have had more wasp it would have been war was a stinker you yeah. thought Age of Ultron was a stinker? No, I thought that was one of the best Marvel compared, movies. Compared to compared to the body of work of all of them, they are the worst four. No, no. Age of Ultron is probably one of the best in representing what the Avengers or what we're, the event dynamic not, not of the Avengers about, we're was. We're not talking about we're not talking we're only talking about what's good. I'm only I'm only talking about what's good in this in this small microcosmic moment. But I digress. We digress. My point is, it's going to be interesting to see how they how they maintain good films as they bring in uh, the X Men and the Fantastic Four, and as they integrate things like I, I have my fingers crossed for the Illuminati, and it's not the, gonna how they, happen. It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yes. No. Because with all these cute, with all the, the conspiracy 
no. all the QAnon nuts in the U.S., dude. bringing in the Illuminati would be perfect. Dude, no, because Tony Stark is the one who started that, and Black Bolt was also a member. You can't have an Illuminati without those two. So you have Black Bolt replaced by Black Panther. Professor X can be in it. Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, wait, no, not technically. Okay, never mind. I'll take Who, Who's dead? I, I, I literally for a second believed Black Panther was dead, but it was just Chadwick Boseman that I was thinking of. Rest in peace. That's, that's how deeply connected he is to that role for me. That's a different, that's a different topic, different topic for a different day. Yep. But like, I, it'll be interesting to see if they maintain that these good things and maybe by then we'll be able to figure out their ethos. I, I really hope they, I really maybe, hope they do. Let me, let me finish. I think they'll, I think we'll be able to tell of an ethos much better once I think one X Men movie will tell us because mm -hmm. the X Men are such a different team, such a different dynamic. The team mm -hmm. is built in concentric circles around Professor X, Professor X, and then it's uh, Logan and Storm and Jean and Scott, and then it's Beast and Iceman and Angel and Rogue and Kitty and Colossus, and then it's you know the New Mutants and Glob Herman and well, I guy let's not and talk all. about the New Mutants because that I heard was a gigantic stinker. I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about the team. Okay. Like, and then you've got like Don't the Brotherhood Deadpool. and Deadpool, and he's a mutant, and you can bring him in. And now, of course, I got a Ryan question. Reynolds. I got a question okay. about Deadpool being and in, in the Marvel universe. Is Deadpool going to know he's in the MCU and call it that? Like, is he going, because he's a meta he's a meta character. I think acknowledging how, like, weird it is that they kept him on, they kept Ryan Reynolds when they shifted yeah. to the MCU. But everyone, every, literally every other mutant will be recast. Yeah. Like, it makes me sad that we're losing James McAvoy and, and uh, Michael Fassbender as Magneto and Professor X. Yeah. But also, like, give it to two, give it to two other actors. I really I can't think... imagine anyone other than Patrick Stewart, though. It's really hard for me. But, like, my point is, my, my whole point is, after you, like, <laughs> threw, us, threw me on a tangent, was they need, their, their, their ethos will have to shift because the X-Men are, are a far more mm -hmm. unique group and as they get more cosmic with the Eternals and more Captain Marvel and Guardians of the Galaxy and, and Adam Warlock Adam Warlock and when they go with characters they're beginning to get into characters like Adam Warlock and the Eternals who are super obscure yep. right they hope that people will pick up a comic book but in between the announcement of the film and the release of the film yeah but it'll and be a he, gradual change and it'll be something that's earned like you know, unlike DC, where they just kind of like introduced all these characters at once, went super dark, and um, you know, alienated uh, part of their fan base. Satisfactory answers, guys. Satisfactory answers. Okay. Satisfactory well, answers. Uh, that ends, I guess, our first episode. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, this is gonna be a hell to edit. Oh, I'm leaving that in. Uh, well, thanks to everybody who managed to get through it. Yeah, uh, how we don't know how long this this podcast is probably going to be like two two and a half hours long. Yeah, um, to, to those of you listening, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I guess we'll see everyone next time. Yeah, no, we're yeah. not going to see that, anybody. They'll listen to us, but that's just come is back. That, is that how we is that how we end the podcast? Just come uh, no, back, we end okay? the frog monologue. What?
Okay. Frog Yes, a monologue from Kermit the Frog. Oh, uh, cut. 